Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 this morning. This is a very important topic and a relevant topic with so many different things that are going on. Not only is it relevant in our season of Advent, but it is relevant with so many different things that is plaguing us in the church and Western civilization. So I'm going to ask this morning that you listen closely and quickly because I'm going to have to try to speak quickly and also force myself to stick to my notes. So we're going to be reading our text from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. However, we're going to be discussing the whole chapter, but for sake of time, let's read verses 10 through 13, where the word of the Lord says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. Today I'm attempting to simplify a complex topic in a difficult way in order to defend the second advent, instruct us in the doctrine, encourage and exhort us to eagerly look for and long for the coming of Christ, rebuke and reprove us for not waiting and looking, and warn you of the apostasy that comes from rejecting this doctrine while doing all these same things in respect to the revelation of Christ, which is the whole eschatological perspective. And by eschatological, we're talking about the future things, the prophecies, the things that are to come as they are revealed and unfolded in Scripture. But I am focusing this morning on the second advent because a rejection of the literal, physical, and bodily advent of Jesus Christ, whether the first or the second, um, is a rejection of the faith. So, to reject the literal, physical, and bodily second advent of Jesus Christ and the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of the just to everlasting life and the unjust to eternal damnation ultimately ends up in the rejection of the faith in practice and profession. 
I've come to understand that apostasy begins here. It begins with Advent, both in the first Advent and the second Advent, which is why last week I spoke to you about the three comings of Christ, and by three comings I mean three categories of comings, and these categories are the comings associated with his first Advent, his spiritual advent, and his second advent. And we refer to the first and the second because we believe that they are literal, physical, bodily comings. All of which together make up the revelation of Jesus Christ. And yet within those groupings, there are many comings within those three groupings. As the pastor, the Baptist pastor and theologian, of the 18th century, John Gill wrote in his systematic theology, The Body of Divinity, he wrote this, and listen closely. He says, There have been various appearances of Christ already, many in human form before his incarnation, as a presage and pledge of it, but his principal appearance, and what may be called his first appearance in coming, was at his incarnation. There were several appearances of him to his disciples after his resurrection and to Stephen and to the Apostle Paul after his ascension. And there was a coming of him in his kingdom and power sometime after to take vengeance on the Jewish nation for their rejection of him and the persecution of his followers. There is now an appearance of Christ in heaven as the advocate of his people. And there is a spiritual appearance of him at conversion and in after visits with his love and communion with him and in the latter day there will be a great appearance of Christ in a spiritual manner or a coming of him by the infusion of his spirit upon his people when his spiritual reign will take place elsewhere treated of in his systematic theology but he goes on to say after which will be the personal appearance of Christ to reign in a still more glorious manner Hence his appearance and kingdom are joined together when he shall judge both the quick and the dead, and this will be attended with great glory and is called his glorious appearing, and in distinction from his first coming and appearance at his incarnation, it is called the second. So I prefaced this statement before that long lengthy quote, with, I have come to understand that apostasy begins here with the rejection of the advent. Or I could say the rejection of advent. Because the apostle John wrote in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. To deny the literal, physical, and bodily revelation of Jesus as the Christ is Antichrist. 
I am not sure why that's so difficult to understand in our day and time, because if your definition of spiritual is non-literal, then it is atheistic and antichrist, which is to deny God. And I'm not talking about the use of non-literal language. I'm talking about spiritualizing things to where they're not true. Jesus, who was God, the second person of the Trinity, the Word, the Son, was literally manifested in the flesh, literally spoke words to express literal truths, although he many times used symbolic, illustrative, allegorical, even used word imagery and figurative language to convey these literal truths. The book of Revelation uses imagery and symbols to express literal truths and literal events. And the Bible is full of this type of language, just as we commonly use figurative language today. Now, not understanding these things has led to a lot of confusion in the modern church, and this confusion is getting worse. Just when we thought it could not get any worse, with dispensationalism throughout the 1900s, along comes hyperpreterism. By the way, if there is ever a hyper attached to anything, or if a hyper should be attached to it, avoid it like the plague. The prefix hyper is a dead giveaway that something is wrong. For instance, everybody has tension, right? How can you live in this world without tension? There's tension all around us. It's a part of life. But if you have hypertension, the doctor tells you you have a problem, right? It's the hyper part that is the problem. Calvinism is a nickname given to the doctrines of grace, but hyper-Calvinism is a heresy. Dispensationalism should have been called hyper-dispensationalism because from the beginning or it should have been called that from the beginning, because in covenant theology, regardless of whether you're premillennial, all-millennial, or post-millennial, you should believe in two dispensations of the covenant of grace. Okay? So, covenant theology is dispensational. But this thing that came along in the 1900s was hyper-dispensational. So too it is with preterism. The prefix hyper is an identifying marker. All Orthodox Christians believe that there are biblical prophecies that have been fulfilled in the past. That's what preterism means. Past. It's past things. For example, Christians believe in the preterist view of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, where it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. We believe that that has already happened. It's past. In Matthew chapter 1, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And it says that... She was found a child, Joseph being her just man, or being her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, 
which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Just because there are other prophecies in Isaiah that have been fulfilled in the past does not mean that all the prophecies in Isaiah have been fulfilled. An example of prophecy still yet unfulfilled in Isaiah is Isaiah 26 and verse 19, where it says, Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out her dead. Not fulfilled. Hyperpreterism is the heretical, eschatological doctrine that all things have been fulfilled. They believe and they claim. Of course, you know, there's always all kinds of different explainers and explanations. But they believe all things are fulfilled. The consummation has already occurred, meaning there is no future resurrection, judgment, advent of Christ, etc. The next problem, though, is that whenever these things are said to be in the past, they have to be idealized, idealized, or spiritualized because they become nonsense. You all know. You can go down here to the grave and you know that the dead are still in the graves, right? So it becomes nonsense. So what do you have to do? Then you have to start idealizing it, spiritualizing it. In order to make, try to make sense out of nonsense. It becomes nonsense, though, in time and space. So that it must be made non-literal, so that not only do they claim these things have already happened, but that they did not actually happen. So what you end up with is a belief that all biblical prophecy in the revelation of Jesus Christ is already passed, but it really didn't happen because it was just spiritual or symbolic of some mystical truth that is not true because it didn't happen in time and space. In the end, it is atheistic determinism and fatalism. Or we could also say it's Gnosticism in reverse. If hyperpreterism is true, then Jesus is no longer with us because in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, he says that he will be with us until the end of the age or the end of the world, depending upon your translation. And hyperpreterism says that the end of the world, the end of the age has already happened. So Jesus isn't with us. He is no longer with us in evangelism for the salvation of sinners. And if he's not with us anymore in the Great Commission, then how are we to be saved? If hyperpreterism is true, then we should not observe the Lord's Supper because we are told to remember his death until he comes. Therefore, we should no longer baptize since we are to be baptized into his death. If hyperpreterism is true, then it means that all Christians who were alive in AD 70 were taken. If hyperpreterism is true, then it means that death will no longer, will never go away. That it will continue forever. We are never delivered from the wages of sin. And if we're not ever delivered from the wages of sin, can we say that we are going to receive the gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus? As a matter of fact, if hyperpreterism is true, then nothing in the New Testament is for us because it was given 
to the church until the end of the age when Christ would return. It is the manual for the church and what the church should do until all things are fulfilled. Therefore, the only thing left for Christians to know, according to preterism, is that, or hyperpreterism, excuse me, is that everything is past and we are stuck in some kind of a matrix here in the physical realm until we are freed into some mystical, spiritual realm of nothingness. Therefore, Jesus did not come back to reconcile the world to God. Now, my purpose this morning is not to confuse the topic with a lot of terms that many are unfamiliar with, but there will be occasions where it's unavoidable. So if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to get with me at a later time. What we are dealing with here is the subject of eschatology, and eschatology is basically defined as future things, things yet to come. Some have attempted to define this word as a branch of theology concerned with the final events in history, in the history of the world, such as death, the end of the world, or the ultimate destiny of mankind. But the problem with that is that it is extremely reductionist. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15, we find the first eschatological statement concerning the coming of Christ in the Bible. It is a statement about a future thing from that time. It was prophesied 6,000 years ago, basically, and fulfilled 2,000 years ago, and is continually being realized until it shall be fully accomplished and perfected in the second advent, or sometimes called the consummation of all things. So in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, along with all the other Old Testament prophecies of the first advent, they are all eschatological even though some of them are past. Even though some of them were fulfilled in Christ's first coming. And although fulfilled, they are still relevant because they are part of a total package called the revelation of Christ. These are not disconnected things. The whole of the revelation of Jesus Christ is all Together, it is one package. Christianity is built upon the prophets and the apostles, the Old and New Testament, with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. The whole of redemption, including God's eternal decree and his providence in carrying out his redemptive plan, is eschatological. Oddly, shockingly, surprisingly, and frustratingly, we live in a day when Christians have rejected the revelation of Christ, and as a result, there are a whole host of consequences, and that is what our day is all about. The consequences of sin and unbelief within Christianity. Unbelief and sin within the church, which is also called deconstruction or apostasy. And the sooner we acknowledge that fact, the sooner we can begin to rebuild, right? We know from biblical accounts and historical accounts that there was a lot of confusion in the first century as well. Just like today, there was ignorance, misunderstanding, and deception in their day. Paul and Peter both speak to ignorance, both ignorance in the lack of knowledge and ignorance that arises from a lack of understanding of knowledge, which gives rise to deception. 
In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, Paul says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant. In 1 Corinthians 12, 1, he says, Concerning spiritual gifts, I would not have you ignorant. Here in our text, Peter says, in, in verse 5, For this they are willingly ignorant of, or some translations say, for this they willfully forget. In verse number 8, but uh, uh, Peter says, Be not ignorant of this one thing. Or maybe your translation says, Do not be forgetful of this one thing. Obviously, you cannot understand what you do not know, but simply having facts does not guarantee understanding. You can be ed- uneducated and ignorant, and you can be educated and ignorant. Anyone disbelieve that? Because I have some people I could point you to. Uh, Educated and ignorant. Knowledge must possess understanding or it is a bunch of useless factoids, right? In In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, Paul says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So what's Paul saying here? That mankind, you know, that there's something mystical about the words and, and you have to have this moving of the Holy Spirit to make you to be able to visually see what the words say? No. No. Unbelievers can read the same words that we read. But having the facts does not mean understanding. They're, not, they're spiritually discerned because man, in his natural state, suppresses it. Suppresses the word so that he can live in unrighteousness. But ignorance and misunderstanding breeds deception, and it was a problem in the first century. Paul addressed some of these things, like, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... Um, How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? In 2 Timothy, in chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy to shun uh, profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. You see, there was ignorance, misunderstanding, and deception in the first century as well. And it was addressed by Paul. As a matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, that infamous passage of Scripture, right? The one that everybody knows coming out of the 1900s in American evangelicalism, Paul is actually addressing this ignorance in the first century. He says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, remember, concerning them who have fallen asleep, that you sorrow not even as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord will descend himself, 
from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The point is that Peter here is addressing the ignorance, misunderstanding, and deception in the first century here in our text in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. We are addressing it today because of the ignorance, misunderstanding, and deception of the 21st century. So notice the very first thing, and that is the certainty of Christ's advent here in this chapter. Paul, uh, Peter's first concern is that of Christ's second coming. Somehow or another, I lost my spot. But notice what he says. He says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in, which, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So Paul begins by stating his purpose of which is to stir up their pure minds by way of remembrance. His first concern is the certainty of Christ's second coming. As a side note, this certainty is not in full knowledge of every detail. Because Peter even admits this, right? Later on in this chapter, he'll talk about the hard writings of Paul. Hard to understand. He makes acknowledgement of that. But Peter is certain on key things. He is certain about the fundamental articles of the Christian religion. And the problem that we have today is that we have to know every little detail like it's some kind of formula. But in trying to know the unknown, we end up rejecting what has been revealed. These words here in the beginning of this chapter, simply put, is... To cause us to remember the inspired word of God delivered to us by the prophets and the apostles. To be stirred by the Old Testament and the New Testament. To be attentive and to observe the word. The promises of God of which is eternal life in the resurrection and the physical return of Christ are to be relied upon based upon the word. It is the word of God where we are to be awakened to the truth and upon which our thoughts are to be based. When it comes to the second advent of Jesus Christ and in understanding the revelation of Christ, this only comes with a reliance upon the Old and New Testament. For with, he says, knowing this, or excuse me, he says that... Uh, 
First, as I write to you this second epistle, it is to stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you might be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles. In chapter 1 of this letter, Paul uh, Peter was not going to be negligent, but he says he is always reminding them to be present, uh, to be to, to know the present truth and to stir them up in their remembrance of these things because he and the other apostles did not follow cunningly devised fables when they made known unto them the power and coming of Jesus Christ, but they were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for Jesus received from God the Father glory and honor when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then Peter and the other apostles heard this voice which came from heaven when they were with him on the holy mountain. Therefore, Peter says, because of this, we have a more sure word of prophecy that Peter then exhorts them to take heed of as a light that shines in a dark place, knowing that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying is we can be confident that the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, is the revelation of God, the progressive revelation of Christ, the unfolding of prophecy. It is absolutely necessary to understand that the Bible is a progressive revelation of God, and therefore the Old Testament presents a mingled prophecy of the first and second advents, often combining comings in the same context, because when you're looking off at a distance and from a distance at the revelation of Christ, you do not see the precision or the division as clearly until there is further revelation and as the prophecy unfolds. The writer of Hebrews describes the law as a shadow of good things to come. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul describes the law as a shadow of good things to come, with Christ being the substance. Things are not as clear from a distance, and the details of the messianic prophecies are interwoven in the Old Testament, but as they are recorded and fulfilled and restated in the light of fulfillment, the vision becomes clearer. For example, in Isaiah chapter 61, in verse number 1, it begins, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And it continues. But then you go to Luke chapter 4. In verse number 16, and it says this. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, talking about Jesus. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord. And then he closed the book in mid-sentence. 
and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, today this scripture was fulfilled in your hearing. Notice in the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 61, we find to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. That day of vengeance of our God is not included in the portion of Isaiah that is being stated as being fulfilled in Christ's first advent. So the question is, is this simply a summary or a minimalist statement by Jesus? Or was it not referenced in the fulfillment of the first advent for a reason? Well, if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations. And notice this present time after Christ's advent is referred to as tribulations. That you endure which is manifest evident of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us, and, and, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Obviously, he's talking about a future time, right? From his time period, when he's writing this, when he is speaking this, He's talking about a future time. And he says, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance. See, the first advent to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The second advent, vengeance. In Isaiah chapter 61, it's all together. But in the New Testament, they're identified They're separated. And then it says this, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know not God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day, and notice it's referred to as the day, a day of the Lord, not year of the Lord, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So the vengeance part of the advent or the revelation of Jesus Christ, was not directly stated in the first advent because it belongs to a different and distant advent from the first. Jesus said in his first advent he did not come to condemn the world. He stated that he did not come to judge the world, but he came to save the world. That's the first advent. It is the second advent when he will come to judge the world in vengeance. This distinction is also found in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. And that's the thing that everyone likes to argue about and so forth. Because uh, the disciples were taking Jesus around and showing him the temple and how magnificent it was. And basically trying to get affirmation of how wonderful the Jews were and so forth. And, And so Jesus said, hey, do you see all these things? I tell you assuredly that not one of them, not one of these stones is going to be left here upon another. 
they're all going to be thrown down. And so later the disciples came to him and asked him privately. He said, they said, tell us, when will these things be? When, when will these things be? The things that Jesus said, right, about the temple being destroyed. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Remember, the disciples are seeing this in the Old Testament prophecies without full light as to the clarity of distinctions. Therefore, when Jesus told them about the destruction of the temple, they saw it as one event. Therefore, they asked, tell us when these things will be, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age or the end of the world. And the end of the age to them was the end of the world or the end of time because they saw these things as synonymous due to the mingling of the comings of Christ in the Old Testament. It was just one full big picture that's presented. And so they saw the destruction of the temple and the end of the world as the same thing. And it should not surprise us because they did not see a lot of things clearly. Right? Like, for instance, the kingdom of God, which is why Jesus taught on it so much. They believed the kingdom of God was inseparable from Old Testament Israel. Even up until the point of time of the ascension. That always astonishes me but they were wrong just as they were in error here and jesus as he always does corrects their erroneous thinking jesus answers their questions with greater precision than their understanding as reflected in the questions jesus begins with a summary warning of great tribulation but as he continues through the list of tribulations he says in verse six after all these tribulations that all these things must come to pass but the end is not yet Then another list of tribulations, but then he says in verse 8, all these things are the beginning of sorrows. More tribulations listed, and then in verse 14 he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. Now some have attempted to make this fulfilled based upon the apostles taking the gospel into the whole world of their day, but isn't that kind of a limited scope of the gospel? For God so loved the world, God so loved the nations before 70 AD, but not after. That he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes before 70 AD, believes in him, that they will not perish but have everlasting life. Is that really what we are to surmise? Or did God so love the world that all nations throughout all time that he sent his son. The question is, is the Great Commission no longer in effect? Did it expire in AD 70 because the gospel of the kingdom was only to be preached to those nations? Well, we continue on down in Matthew 24 and goes through a whole list of other things about the abomination of desolation and the destruction of Jerusalem and what they are to do when that happens. And he lists all these things and all these judgments. And then in verse 34 of Matthew 24, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation, what generation? This one who he is speaking to, will by no means pass away until all these things, what things? The things he just previously said. Right? All these things, will, um, excuse me, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And then verse 35, 
Heaven and earth shall pass away. Future tense. Verse 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not. What is heaven and earth passing away? The end of the age, the end of the world? But then he says in verse 36, But of that day, what day? The day when heaven and earth shall pass away. That, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. But as in the days of Noah, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. This is what the coming, this coming, is likened to. Therefore, in this day of the Lord, he continues to say in verse number 42, Watch therefore, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And he repeats this several times. But the coming of judgment that is listed before verse 34, you do know. The coming of judgment in verse 30 and all the things prior to verse 34 takes place before that generation passes away. So you do have an idea of the time. But it can also be identified by the abomination of desolation is when you see the armies basically compass Jerusalem. When you see the abomination of desolation in verse 15... And that specific time of tribulation also has signs in the heavens, even the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, to announce the coming judgment upon Jerusalem. Therefore, the coming of verse 30 that is connected with the destruction of Jerusalem can be known, while the coming associated with heaven and earth passing away cannot be known. This coming that is associated with heaven and earth passing away is likened unto Noah. Which brings us back to our text. In verse number 3, notice what Peter says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. For this they willingly forget, that by the word of God... The heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the world and and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Peter is predicting scoffers or skeptics who will because of the lapsing time of Christ's return. Um that they will become unbelievers. You see, they'll say this world has continued on for so many years and Christ has not returned, so they'll start to make fun of it. They'll start to make fun of those who actually believe in the physical and bodily return of Jesus Christ. But Peter points out 
That there is something that they are forgetting. And what they are forgetting is that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 24, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And just like Jesus, Peter then proceeds to use the flood of Noah as an example of the day of the Lord when Jesus shall return to the earth. Not just in the clouds of judgment against Jerusalem, but return to earth for judgment against all ungodly men to physically rule and reign not in the not in the old heavens and earth but in a new heaven and earth the present heavens and earth are preserved by the word of god but they are also reserved by the same word for the judgment of the nations and not just on the one jewish nation and then notice peter encourages the saints not to forget this one thing in verse number eight But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do not forget this one thing, Peter says. What is this one thing? We'll put in my own words here. It's the gospel. The long-suffering of Jesus Christ. Do not forget the gospel in your eschatological position. That the Lord is gracious, long-suffering, and patient. His long-suffering is not because he's unfaithful. It's not because he's a slacker. But because he is long-suffering for the salvation of sinners. God so loved the world. Time means nothing to God. A thousand years in his sight is just like yesterday. Think of God's long-suffering before the flood, because this is the example that Jesus used. It's the example that Peter used. Think of God's long-suffering before the flood. And why did he suffer long? To save eight souls. The love of God is greater far than all of our sins, but it's even greater far than our imagination that God would endure with much long suffering from the fall till the flood where man's the thought of man's heart was evil continually exceedingly wicked the Bible says but he endured with long suffering to save eight souls Peter says, Consider the long-suffering of God, how he waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein a few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. You see, it's a terrible thing to prefer data over the gospel. It's a terrible thing to be a formula solver, be more concerned about solving the riddle, more than the gospel. There is a problem with any eschatological position in any view of prophecy that is not derived from the gospel. A gospel-less eschatology is antichrist. And don't forget this one thing, Peter says. God is long-suffering. God's long-suffering is not slackness, it's salvation. And then notice the character of Christ's second advent in verses 10 through 13, which we have already read. 
The second advent is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the revelation of Jesus Christ according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. It comes as a thief in the night when the old passes away and all things become new. This new is a new creation. It is a new heaven and a new earth where the old gives way to the new. It is the consummation of redemption where all the promises of God is realized. And what is the new creation? Paul says... For I consider not the sufferings of this present time, that they're not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. Paul says it this way in the book of Philippians. That many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it might be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, Peter says, since all these things will be dissolved, and it's going to give way to new heaven and a new earth, what kind of persons ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And that's how he ends this chapter, with a charge. The charge to the saints about Christ's advent, his second advent. You see, this charge is what our eschatological hope is to produce. It's the whole purpose for God revealing this information to us. And of course, many are not satisfied. It's not enough information. We want to know more. We want to know this. We want to know that. But what was the purpose for which God gave us this information in revealing to us the hope of the uh, revelation of Jesus Christ in his first advent, his spiritual advent, in his second advent, Notice what he says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they also do the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away from Uh, with the heir of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Yes, eschatology is difficult and hard to understand. But if we do not hyper-focus on minor things that we have difficulty understanding, and if we focus on the things clearly revealed, a proper knowledge and understanding of these things should give us sufficient knowledge and understanding to cause us to focus on holy conduct and godliness. It should cause us to be diligent so that we are found by Christ at his coming in peace without spot and blameless. It should cause us to be steadfast and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if eschatology is not doing that, there's something wrong with the eschatology. If we are hyper-focused on trying to twist the scriptures to make it fit every little whim, every little question, every little preference, every little fad, every little trend, or if we seek to form the scripture, or if we seek to form the scripture with such a clarity and precision in our own mind that the Lord did not intend, it will result in our own destruction, causing us to fall away from our own steadfastness and being led away with the air of the wicked, which is unbelief that results in deconstruction rather than faithful practice. See, we also must remember that the scripture, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is a revealing, it's an unfolding. But only that which God intends for us to know. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to the Lord, only those things revealed belong to us. Peter is declaring the things that are revealed for us and that they were given so that we might do, so that we might believe and walk in godliness. The eschatological things were revealed to us to cause us to have a reverent fear, to persuade us to live in faith and obedience. And Paul, writing to Titus, says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous of good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Father, we pray that we would rest entirely and completely upon your word not fearing, being despised, but that we would proclaim boldly your word faithfully as you have revealed it unto us by your prophets and your apostles. And Lord, we pray that in the things that you have revealed unto us and have been declared unto us in your holy word, We pray that it would cause us, that it would stir us up, that it would incite us, that it would humble us, that it would cause fear within us so that we would live godly 
and righteously in this present age. And we ask this in the name of our Savior and King, who will one day return physically, literally, and bodily, raising those who are his to eternal life in physical, literal bodies. And we thank you for the hope of eternal life that we have. In Christ's name, amen.